0: And currently we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. A little bit of review then. A little bit of review that we're going to be doing is uh, turning to Genesis 15 to get started here. Alright, Genesis 15. Last week we began by looking at verses 7 through 16. Just to read those a little bit. Somebody mind reading verse 7? Then he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the, Chaldeans? Thank you. You got it. To give you this land to inherit it. Excellent. So verse 7, you remember we talked about the last week that the week before, verses 1 through 6, this is God appearing to Abram, this is God's promise to Abram, that verses 1 through 6 had to do with children. And then starting in verse 7 and moving forward, this has to do with the land. So it's a twofold promise having to do with descendants and having to do with a land to possess. Somebody mind reading verse 8 now? But Abram said, This sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will be in possession of it? And you remember we talked about this verse a little bit. We uh, discovered that he's not actually doubting. He's just looking for more details. Verse 9. Somebody mind reading that one? Then the Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Excellent. Thank you, Jennifer. So there we have five animals God specifically directing Abram to go collect and to bring to him. Verse 10. Somebody mind reading that? So Abram took all these for him and then cut them in two and placed each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Excellent. Thank you. So here we have a situation where we saw that the covenant that God is making with Abram ends up being symbolized or there's some symbolism that's going on where these animals are cut in half and they're arranged to create a pathway. And you remember how we talked about some of the tradition in that was that the parties that uh, were being uh, participants in this covenant or this agreement, traditionally they would walk through the path together with the understanding that if I break my part of the deal, then let me become as like one of these animals that's been cut in half. So as you're walking between the cut heifer, and it's one side on this side, one side on the other side, and you go to the next one, there's these animals. Yeah, I'd like to be space. She was like, I wasn't here. This I was like, this is kind of strange. You've got these halves of animals. It's a bloody messy scene. And as you're walking through it, it's supposed to impress upon you that I'm taking this seriously, and if I'm agreeing that I deserve to be like one of these if I don't keep my end of the bargain. Okay, so that's what we're looking at right here. Somebody might read in verse 11 then. And when the vultures came down on the carcasses... Abram drove them away. So we have vultures now coming down because you've got dead animals. Vultures want to eat carrion, they want to come down and eat the uh, dead animals. Abram takes upon himself to chase those away. Next verse, verse 12. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Excellent. Thank you, Devon. So here we have the sun going down. We have a situation where there's a deep sleep falling upon him. The deep sleep, you remember, we talked about, was similar to a deep sleep that was experienced by Adam when Adam was put into a deep sleep and one of his ribs was taken from him, and he gets a woman out of the deal. All right. So that's the kind of sleep that's going on. All right. Here also we find out, though, That as we look through this story and continue on from this passage and forward, he seems to be aware of what's going on. Abram seems to be aware of the rest of the stuff that's going on. So even though it's a deep sleep, it seems that God is still communicating with him in a way that he can understand. And then there's that aspect of horror and great darkness. And we talked about how in the presence of God, you almost can't control yourself based on the fear that would often come over you. It's very, un, it's very common as you're reading through your Bible stories where somebody meets with or is in the presence of God and there's just this fear and trembling that happens. And, and a lot of times there's also an introductory phrase. It's fear not, you know, as if that's going to help when the moment comes upon yourself that, you know, you're trying to be encouraged by a divine presence to fear not and then, and then you're overwhelmed by the fear that, that ends up having that. And you see that from Genesis to Revelation just all over the place. Moving on from there. Somebody mind reading verse 13? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. Excellent. Thank you, B. So we found in that verse, as we were talking about that, the idea of being sojourners here on this, in this life, in this land, that we're just here just passing through. We also talked about this is foreshadowing Egypt when the descendants of Abram are going to be <laughs> going down to Egypt. And we're, we're being given a glimpse here of what that's going to look like. Verse 14. Somebody mind reading that? I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Again, that verse talking about a little bit of what you would see fulfilled in the Exodus, uh, the story of the Exodus of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. Verse 15. No. No. go Go ahead. Go ahead. But you will die in peace at a ripe old age excellent thank you jennifer so in that verse you remember we talked about how his descendants ended up dying at an old age as well but in the difference in those situations or in those in his descendants you have the element of peace seems to be missing and then in verse 16 that's pretty much where we got up to but in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity of the amorites is not yet complete and you remember how we talked about that was actually fulfilled in the fourth generation we talked about how Moses is, is the generation that ended up coming out. Moses being the leader of the people coming out in the Exodus to be fulfilled, at beginning of the book of Exodus. And uh, he's the fourth generation for Levi, which was the, the generation that went into Egypt. So it was literally fulfilled, fourth generation. And then we talked about uh, just that last element there in verse 16. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And how God sees and he notices and he remembers and he, and he keeps track of the sins, of. it seems that he knows what's going on. He's paying attention and he knows in the future what's going to be happening. And you remember how we talked about, we went to Leviticus 18, 24 and 25, where it says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. And we were like, okay, so what are these things? What are the things that defile the land? And we pretty much ended by getting up to this point where we were talking about How if you look at the context of that passage and you look at the verses immediately preceding it, you find in verse 20 it talks about having sexual relations with somebody to whom you're not married. In verse 22 it talks about having sexual relations with somebody of the same sex. These are two biggies that bring defilement upon the land that causes God to say, you know what, there's going to be judgment. There's going to be judgment for that land because they're tolerating that kind of stuff. And you remember how we talked about and challenged ourselves to recognize what does that mean for us? You know? Does that mean that maybe we're in an in-between time? Maybe God's judgment is set for a particular date for this country, for this nation, and we're just living in the time of God's forbearance and grace. It's sobering to contemplate. It's sobering to think about something like that. But God's standards haven't changed. It's not like God's relaxed his standards and said, okay, you know what, I'm going to just tolerate this from now on. I used to not tolerate it, but that didn't work, so now I'm going to tolerate it. No, that's that's not God. He doesn't change his standards like that. So now we're up to verse 17. This is going to be somewhat new information then that we're moving into. Verse 17, somebody mind reading this one. And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that, behold, there appears a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between uh, those two, or those pieces. Excellent. Thank you, Devon. Passed between what pieces? What's he talking about? What is it being referred to when he says pieces? Well, the body parts, right? And and the halves. Yeah, this is the animals. This is the pathway between the cut-up animals, the butchered animals. So what's passing between the pieces? Flaming torch. torch. A burning or flaming torch. Good. And what else? A smoking fire pot or a smoking oven. Yeah, this is weird. Okay? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, what this would actually look like, I'm not really sure. Right. But if you think about it, if you try to picture this, there's no way to get around the crazy image that you're getting. Right. I mean, you've got some sort of thing that's a smoking oven and a burning torch. These are the elements that's passing down the path. I mean, my tendency would be thinking, OK, clearly he's delusional now. He's you know, he's in a visions trance or something. And maybe this isn't actually happening. But the way that the verse starts out, look, what does it talk about when it says it says when the sun went down? That's not in the realm of fantasy. This is actually, we've been following the trajectory of the sun and has been going around. We're in a 24-hour cycle here. So that's in the realm of nature. That's in the realm of actual happening right there before him. The sun's going down, and while the sun's going down, and after the sun goes down, then these things pass along the path, this smoking oven and a burning torch. So it seems to be something more literal than just a vision. It seems to be something is actually happening. Now, the language is probably symbolic. It's probably suggesting to us that there's something else going on. If you look at this language and you look for it elsewhere in your Bible, you're going to end up coming to the conclusion that, hmm, let's see, we've got a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that lead the children in the wilderness. Oh, if you remember the Mount Sinai story at the Exodus, before the wandering in the wilderness, at Mount Sinai you have fire, you have smoke, you have thunder, you have lightning. In the time of David in the Psalms, in Psalm number 105, verse 39, speaking of God, he says, he spread out a cloud as a covering and a fire to give light at night. And then in Isaiah chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, speeding down to verse 5, it says, a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of a flaming fire by night. And that, at the time of Isaiah, was talking about something yet future. You end up with this image and this unmistakable correlation that this is God. This is God. God is attended by fire. God is attended by the smoke. God is attended by the holy cloud. God is attended by these elements that you see occur again and again and again. So if you see if you see the pattern there, what, what conclusion do you come to? That God is passing between the parts of the animals. Symbolically being described as this smoking oven and burning torch. So smoking oven, burning torch, God Almighty walking the path between the animals. Who's missing in the agreement? Who's not walking the path? Usually two parties walk the path. Mm -hmm. Abram is missing. Abram's not walking the path. He sees it going on. But he's not walking the path. And it's not like God is taking him by the hand and and carrying him through the path. It's not like God is saying, "Eh, when you wake up, I know you're kind of drowsy right now. When you wake up, I'll let you walk through. God alone is going through the path. What is the ramification of that? When we talk about the symbolism of what it meant to pass through this pathway during this covenant or this agreement, this practice... What is the significance of God alone being the one passing through? That God alone made the covenant? That he's bearing all of the responsibility for the covenant. When the parties walk through, traditionally they each say, we are both bearing the responsibilities for seeing this through. And if I let down on my part, I I deserve to be like these animals. If you let down on your part, you deserve to be like these animals. God alone is going down the path. He is shouldering all of the responsibility. This whole chapter is God making a promise to Abram. And Abram's not required to do anything. God's saying, let it be to me if I don't keep my word. God has nothing to worry about, though. Because if you know the God that I know, if you know the God of the Bible, he keeps his word. And so he's like, I'll walk the path. (laughs) I have no problem with that because I keep my word all the time. I cannot lie. I cannot Help, but keep my word. So God walks the path, and we're left with the realization that God is shouldering all of the responsibility of the promise. It's as if God is saying, I'm going to do this, what I'm promising, whether or not you keep your end of the bargain. I am going to fulfill my promise, and it doesn't actually require you to succeed or to fail at anything I give you to do. That's craziness. That's wild. Isn't that the kind of love God shows us? Isn't that the kind of grace that God shows us? That when he calls us out of our foreign land of foreign gods, okay? When he calls us out of the old life to follow him, all right? We don't do anything to merit that. It's a gracious invitation given to us freely that he's willing to shoulder the whole thing. We're just in agreement with him. We're just accepting the invitation, And he shoulders the weight, the burden, to make it happen, to see it happen. When God died on the cross, he shouldered the whole responsibility. He took all of it. And we didn't have to do anything to merit an ounce of salvation other than to receive from him what he was extending to us as an invitation. And we just accept the invitation. That's craziness. But that's a picture of what it looks like in God's love. Verse 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. On the same day, the Lord made a covenant. Mine says made a covenant. Anybody else have something different there? The reason I ask is because in Hebrew, the actual translation for that word is cut. So it's the Lord cut a covenant. And the reason for that wording is because you have the picture, you have the animals that are cut. Mm-hmm. And it's that same idea, just as these animals were cut, we're cutting a covenant. We're making a covenant. So that was the symbolic picture of what God is actually doing. He's making a promise. What is a covenant? It's a compact, an agreement, or a promise. All right? So God's making a promise to Abram, and He's saying to your descendants, to your Zerah, to your seed. This is the Hebrew word Zerah. We've seen this quite a few times. This is this is descendants. It can be singular or plural, but he's saying to you, to your Zerah, to your descendants, I have given this land. When you hear the phrase promised land, well, that's what's happening here. This is where the promise is. All right, right here in Genesis 15, 18. That's where the element of the promised land phrase, the promise comes in, the promised land. I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So what are we talking about? Modern day, we're talking about Israel, right? Yes and no. Here's what I mean by that. Got a map over here. Every once in a while you'll see me pull this map out and then I end up making markings on it. I want you to find Israel. So as you're looking at the bat, think to yourself, hmm, where's Israel? Right? Here's Israel, right here. Right there. About 8,019 square miles. 8,019 square miles. That's modern-day Israel. Is modern-day Israel the same as being described there? What does that verse say? What are the elements in the description of the land God's promised? The river of Egypt. The river of Egypt. Okay, that phrase right there, the river of Egypt, this is the one and only time that that phrase appears in the Bible. So, there's some speculation as to what exactly is being described by the river of Egypt. Some would propose that it's right here, Wadi El Arish, alright? So if that's the case, then the border's down here. Or the others would say, no, the river of Egypt, clearly, that's a Nile. And they would say that the border then is down here. I don't know, I can't tell you, it's the only place it shows up in the Bible, so we're not sure. But the border itself, where modern day Israel is, is something more than modern day Israel. What's the other phrase there that's used to describe that land out of that verse? The Great River of the Euphrates. The Great River Euphrates. We've come across that before. The Great River Euphrates. Is that the northern boundary of modern-day Israel? <laughs> oh, it's in a completely different place. Here's the modern Euphrates. Is that a little bit farther away? <laughs> all right. Modern-day Israel is 8,019 square miles. If you take it all the way to the modern Euphrates, all right, and you take it down to, to here, all right, just that amount, you're talking tenfold increase. You're talking 80,000 miles, square miles. You're talking something 10 times bigger than what we know of as modern Israel. So is this still yet future or has this already been fulfilled? There are some that would say this has already been fulfilled. There's a place that you can look at in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21. In fact, let's go look at that. 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21. 1 Kings is in your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua Joshua, judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First Kings, chapter four, verse twenty-one. Somebody mind reading that? King Solomon ruled all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines, as far south as the border of Egypt. Excellent, thank you, Jennifer. So there are some theologians that would point out, there it is, it's fulfilled. Uh, Yes and no. Here's the yes part. It it says right there, it's fulfilled it gives you roughly the same description of the land that we would have here that God's promising that they would rule over. Here's the problem with that, though. Almost as soon as they expanded their realm to that, it began to crumble and and get chipped away again. So if God made a promise to them, the fulfillment, if this is the fulfillment, was a very small slice of time. You're talking hundreds and hundreds of years in the future from this Genesis time. And then it's only it's only good for a little while. As if God's promise is way out there, and then it fades away as soon as it happens. And it never really was complete. The peoples of those lands were never really completely conquered. So Solomon at the beginning of his realm, David at the end of his realm, that transition period is when this was strongest. And then very soon after Solomon came into power, it began to crumble. So... There is that possibility. You could say, yes, it was fulfilled. We could look here at 1 Kings chapter 4, <laughs> verse 21, that it was fulfilled. But I think the nature and character that we see of God as we're reading his word is that he doesn't make promises of something so minor and so passing so far into the future. I think maybe what we saw here in 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 21 is a foreshadowing or a foretaste of another fulfillment still yet future for us. I believe there's coming a day and an age where God's going to rule, and where there's going to be a bigger realm than modern-day Israel has. I think we're going to see, and you, you remember how we've seen this a lot, where there are patterns in the Bible. You see a near fulfillment, and then you see a later greater fulfillment. And I think this first Kings passage is a near fulfillment that's a taste of a greater fulfillment, yet still future. Okay, So that's just my proposal. I think, as you look through your Bible, I think that's the flavor that you can get out of that. Another place that you can also look is Joshua chapter one verse four. God speaking and Joshua penning it. Joshua chapter one verse four says, Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. When Joshua was leading the army after the time of Moses, Joshua takes charge and he ends up leading the people into the promised land. They never saw the fulfillment of this. It wasn't at all during the time of Joshua. In fact, when God was talking to Joshua here, he's saying it's gonna be this big But uh, what he saw was this big, all right? So they were still yet uh, predicting it. Another place to turn to is Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. And this is another place where it talks about God's promise of the land. In Psalm 105, verses 8 and 11, it says this of God. He remembers his covenant forever. That he is obviously God. The remembers remembers is more than just a memory statement. The remembers is a memory statement, but it's also an action statement. (laughs) So God takes action. When he remembers something, it's conveying that there's an action involved. He remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, the oath he swore to Isaac, he confirmed it to Jacob as a decree, to Israel as an everlasting covenant. And then it quotes, To you I will give the land of Canaan as the portion you will inherit. So it's referring right back to God's promise of the land. And God is saying of himself... God is saying and and inspiring the Holy Spirit to write down these words for us in Psalm 105, verses 8 through 11. Listen to the language. Forever. Thousand generations. Everlasting. It doesn't sound like that describes the land that was governed by Solomon at the beginning of his reign. Because that wasn't forever, and that wasn't thousand generations, that wasn't everlasting. And listen to the language that talks about the covenant, the promise, the covenant, the oath, confirmed. It sounds like that maybe Solomon's era was a little taste of what the future still yet holds. Genesis fifteen nineteen. then, going back to Genesis. Genesis fifteen nineteen says this. The Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, and the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. No fewer than ten nations, ten people groups, all right? So you have ten people groups. Ten is often used as a symbol for completeness, all right? These lists of the people groups that were in the land before the children of Israel came in and that God empowered to take the land, these lists show up 27 times in our Bible. 27 times. And the number of people groups that are listed in those lists, they go from 2 to 12. All right, So the lists are not uniform. So most of the time they're used to describe representatives. All right, They describe representative people groups to describe all the people in the land. So of those 27 lists, the average number of people groups that are mentioned are 6. But you can have as few as two or as many as 12. So we should read this list, I would propose, the same way we would read any of those other lists. These are representative people groups in the land representing all the people of the land. All right. So we have all the people of the land. And then some of the interesting uh, notations about some of these people groups. In verse 20, you have the Rephaim mentioned there. Rephaim are often associated with giants. We've seen that before the flood, and now here they are again after the flood. I don't know what's going on. Uh, And then uh, verse 21, you have the Amorites, which we saw mentioned earlier, just a few verses ago, as a single representative of the whole people, of of all the people of that land. Here they are mentioned more specifically. (laughs) And then the last one there is Jebusites. The Jebusites were the inhabitants of the city of Jerusalem, uh, even up to the time of David, all right, up to the time of David and the battle of Goliath, David and Goliath, and then you have the sword, and uh, that's another story. All right, I'm getting, (laughs) getting too far afield all right so what so what so we finished this chapter here verse uh, chapter 15 and specifically the verses that have to do with verses uh, 7 and following having to do with the land a few of the so what's are a few of the things that we can take applications for ourselves today number one in verse eight we see that it's okay to ask god questions for more details Uh, it's not okay to hold a position where you doubt god where god says something and, and that you're doubting him and you're saying god forget it you know i don't believe you that's not an attitude he wants us to come to him with. Instead, we need to come to God with an attitude that we're like, okay, I'm, I'm on board with it. Can I get some more details? He's okay with that. And you know what? He can say no if he wants to. He doesn't have to say yes. But in this situation, we find it's okay. In verse 11, Abram chased away the vultures. The vultures rep- represented a threat to the symbolism of the covenant. All right? You have things in your life that are threatening your relationship with God. Those are vultures. It's up to you to chase them away chase away the vultures in your own life god left to abram to do that job god leaves to us to do for ourselves what we're capable of doing and then god more than makes up the rest all right but it's not up to us to just sit on the couch and go oh god do whatever you want to do with me but i'm just going to sit here you just have your way and i'm not going to be a participant god wants us to be a participant to the extent of our abilities and here we have abram is, is a participant to the extent of his abilities. He's chasing away the vultures. We need to be engaged chasing away the vultures, the threats in our lives that that God knows that we can handle. If we can't handle it, he's going to make more than make up the difference. Number 12, the horror and dread in the presence of God. We talked about that a little bit. Being in the presence of God, if you're a child, of God, he's your father now. He's your heavenly father. He's your Abba father. All right? And so that mitigates it a little bit. For the person who's not in the family, all right, fear and dread, horror. All right, that needs to be the... They need to recognize that that's in the future <laughs> and that something changes. All right. Verse 13, more details for obedience to follow me. God extends to us, all of us, an invitation to come and follow him. And we see this in the Gospels in the way that he invites his apostles. Come follow me. Follow me. And that would be the invitation to any of us. Follow me. As we obey in that simple command, he reveals to us more of his plan as we go along in following him. The next one, God judges wickedness. Verse 14, we find that God keeps track of wickedness there's a verse in galatians chapter 6 verse 7 that says do not be deceived god is not mocked whatsoever a man sows that will he also reap and there are too many people today living wickedly thinking i got away with it last week i got away with it last year i got away with everything i've ever okay there was that one little time i went to prison for that thing okay when I, mean, I did go to jail for that other thing but that's not the judgment of god all right is is probably what they're thinking they're thinking god who where's god he's not paying attention all right God's keeping track of this kind of stuff. And there is a judgment coming. God judges faithfully, but not always quickly. All right? His mercy extends a long, long time. So even though God does judge, it might not happen according to our schedule. And there might be things in our lives where we feel wrong, and we feel like, God, I need you to judge these people, and I need you to judge them right now. God's timetable is different, and his motives are different. His ways are beyond our ways, beyond finding out. So God judges eventually. And then verse 17, we see that God bears the burden of walking the path. When God makes a commitment to us, all right, he's shouldering the burden of that commitment to us. He's, not, he's never going to lie. He's never going to uh, let down on his end of the bargain. And then verse 18, any unfulfilled promises will be fulfilled. When God makes a promise, he will fulfill it. If, it. if it hasn't been fulfilled already, if you read something in scripture and it's a prophecy and it hasn't been fulfilled yet, look forward to the day it will be because God keeps his promises. Moving then into chapter 16. Chapter 16, somebody might reading verse 1. Now, Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Ooh, we have an introduction of a new character. Who's the new character here? <laughs> Hagar. Hagar. Where did she come from? All right, where do you suppose Hagar came from? Egypt. Egypt. Yeah, she's an Egyptian, so we got a little clue there. All right? There's a couple possibilities here. One possibility is, you remember how Abram... And Sarai went to Egypt, and they concocted this scheme where Abram said, Hey, honey, please do me this favor. Pretend you're my sister. You're so beautiful, I'm afraid they're going to kill you. So if you just pretend you're my sister, I think I think I might be able to get out of it alive if we could do it that way. Awkward place to be put in your wife, all right? So they go down to Egypt with this agreement, and what ends up happening? While they're down there in Egypt, Pharaoh finds out, oh, yeah, What, my men are reporting to me that there's a very beautiful woman? Go get her. Take her to be a part of my harem. <laughs> and Sarah ends up in the in the harem of the Pharaoh. And Abram's probably going, I didn't expect it to get this bad. <laughs> All right. And what ends up happening? There were gifts given to Abram. Oh, he's your brother, and I'm taking away your sister. Okay, here, let me lavish you with gifts. And some of the gifts included male and female servants. It could be that Hagar is one of the gifts given to Abram in payment for Sarai, his sister. Sister, in quotes. It could be that Sarai is given to. Hagar, directly from Pharaoh, that maybe, hey, you're in my harem now, I'm going to appoint to you somebody that's going to attend to your needs and comb your hair, and and here she is, her name is Hagar. That's a possibility as well, that maybe it was a gift from Pharaoh to Sarai in the harem. Or there is another possibility that it could be that Sarai was given Hagar as a maid when Abram and Sarai got together and got married, all right, as a wedding gift back in the day, we have no, we have nothing to support that, but it is another possibility. All right, so somewhere along the way, they picked up Hagar, and here's the introduction. Here's she is named for the first time, and this is going to be nothing but trouble, right? So you remember in the story when they went down to Egypt that in that story there wasn't any seeking God, there wasn't Abram and there wasn't Sarai bowing down in the middle of the desert saying, "Dear God, should we go to Egypt?" We don't have any mention whatsoever that they sought God's direction in that situation. Here again is another time where it doesn't seem like they've sought any direction from God in this situation. All right. So now Sarah Abrams' wife had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. I think we should probably end there, and we'll pick it up from that point next time. And let's go ahead and close prayer. See you later, Gracie. Oh, thank you. All right. Have a good one. All right. Thank you, you too. Somebody might closing us in prayer and asking God to be glorified in our lives this coming week. Father, I just thank you for this time that we have gathered. Thank you for the people that showed up today. Thank you for the prayers, Lord, that were offered and for your spirit to move upon people to make these prayers requests to you and to thank you for the praise reports that we have. We just pray for the study. We pray for what we've heard, Lord. We pray that... It would, uh, you reveal things to us through it. And just be with everybody here, everybody who showed up. And uh, again, hear our prayer requests, Lord. And we give those to you in faith. And we thank you for what you're doing in our lives. And um, just continue to build our faith, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mike. All right. You guys have a great week this week. Praise God. If it's good, it's God. If it's (laughs) it's a mess, then I'll take credit (laughs) for (laughs) it.